welcome to this week's edition of the Unheard podcast with Aisha Hazarika. And this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Jimson, former sketch writer of the Daily Telegraph, contributing editor to Conservative Home and author of new book, Jimson's Prime Minister's Brief Lives from Walpole to Me. And I'm very excited because I have in my hand a copy of this book and it's got a really gorgeous cover on it. So I look very much forward to reading that. And I'm also joined by Jane Merrick, former political editor of The Independent on Sunday, a very prominent political commentator and co-editor of The Spoon, uh, which is a rather excellent morning email. Welcome to my guest. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. What do you think of our lovely view? Very nice. I, I feel as though I've been modernised at last. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, no one could modernise me, really, but yeah. I think it, is, we, it is very, very amazing view. I think yes. we all um, failed the modernisation test with the lifts. They have very trendy lifts which don't have buttons and nobody like who's over 40 understands how to use the lifts. <laughs> so um, we're going to start off with a discussion about stories that we felt were somewhat underreported in the press this week. What we try and do at Unheard is concentrate on things which we think are important rather than things which are necessarily dominating the news cycle the whole time. So, Jane, I wonder if we could start with your story. Yeah, my story is the four um, Muslim MPs who were sent suspicious packages in the post to the House of Commons. And actually, this is sort of on so many levels, it's really frightening and I think deserves more scrutiny. I mean, obviously, they are... They're being targeted because they're Muslims. They're all Labour MPs, but um, and three of them, um, Rupa Hook, Rushnara Ali and Mohammed Yassin, they, their staff opened the packages, and I think it was incredibly frightening because one of them was leaking. Um, I think a couple of members of staff were taken to hospital. The police were called. Um, a fourth MP, Afsal Khan, he um, didn't open the package, but obviously it was reported to police. I think the fact that this is, is being targeted, it comes, I think, a few days after a letter emerged, um, a Punisher Muslim yeah. letter. It was completely horrifying. Language, incredible, you know, sort of such blatant Islamophobia, actually. And um, these letters were actually in those packages as well. And it just, it's so, I think, frightening for the MPs and the staff. And it just shows, actually, that, you know, even with all the security of the House of Commons, you can still be targeted in this way just because of for who you are. And I and I think solidarity to them, actually, that, that they are having to go through this. Well, I mean... I have to say, I saw that I saw some emergence of this punish a Muslim thing a couple of days before these MPs got these letters, and there was almost part of me thinking, you know, is this is this real or is this because you think so much is sort of fake news, and then this happened, and it is absolutely horrendous. Andrew, what, what's your take? Well, it is a very horrible thing. thing. It was condemned in the strongest terms at the beginning of Prime Minister's questions by both. Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. I think it's difficult to know how to play it because it could just be one sort of 17-year-old creep sitting in his bedroom um, or it could be something much more serious. And if it's a 17-year-old creep, in a way you don't want to give that person sort of more publicity than you can or, or, or give whoever the perpetrator is the impression that they've created a really enormous sort of sense of fear. That, that, it's a very, very tricky thing, because it must be condemned, but it shouldn't be publicised. And how you do both I, I, is, is tricky. It's very hard, because, I mean, this is often the argument that comes up after there has been a, a, a serious terrorist incident or a, a, a massacre, you know, should you be giving publicity to the, the person actually doing it? But I do think the... Um, I mean, I, I've kind of got skin in the game on this, brown skin in the game, being a Muslim myself. Mm. And I think there definitely is a sort of rise in in Islamophobia and this week 
I don't know if you saw, Sadiq Khan released a, a video on Twitter, which is him reading out um, very, very hostile Islamophobic messages that, that he's received as, as mayor of London. And it's, you know, I, I think it is a rising thing, but, you know, what are the best ways to, to tackle it? I don't know if the government really can, you know, put in, you know, they're quite torn, aren't they? Because on the one hand, there's this prevent strategy, which is trying to clamp down on extremism, but there's extremism on the other side as well in terms of the far right. Mm. I think what's interesting as well, actually, is that this week we saw Facebook um, taking down pages from Britain First and banning Britain First from Facebook and banning the leader and the deputy leader, Jade Franson and Paul Golding. And actually, although they've tried to set up pages again, they have been taken down. And I think that's interesting that Facebook are finally facing up to their responsibilities as a publisher, not just a platform. And not, not, not to say that these new letters are linked to Britain First, but they are Britain First, a sort of overtly Islamophobic organisation. And I think, and you're right, there is a rise. I mean, I think the, um, the outgoing head of counterterrorism has said that actually the, right, the, the rising threat is from the far right. Obviously, there is the, um, the threat from the other side, but there is this, this rising threat of the far right which has to be taken into account. I mean, I think the word finally was there for, for Facebook because I think mm. the tech giants have been quite slow to act on, on, you know, offensive material on all sides of the spectrum. They sort of, you know, appear to not have very serious responsibilities when it comes to that, and that definitely has to, to change. Yes, I don't think we should get sort of terribly despondent about this, because I think we will get through it. Um, we have got through other forms of prejudice, which admittedly can, can then revive, but there was a great deal of anti-Semitism, including anti-Semitism within the Conservative Party, although the Conservative Party had had Disraeli as the first Prime Minister of Jewish descent. There was a great deal of anti-Irish feeling during the IRA bombings, as if all Irish people were to blame for those bombings, which palpably, completely unjust. I think that's gone away pretty much totally. But do you think the difference now is actually social media allows this kind of thing to flourish and actually that if... Because it's taken years for, for platforms like Twitter and Facebook to do anything about it, I mean, Twitter sort of are now shutting down literally thousands of accounts, but it has allowed this hatred, which, were, which used to be the 17-year-old in his bedroom, yeah, yeah. confined and isolated, and now they mm. can network and they can link to each other, and I think that's what... And in fact, as you say, it's not just it's not just Islamophobia; it's anti-Semitism yes. all over Facebook. Yes. The strange thing is, you do need editors. I mean, when you get rid of the editor, or the, it seems initially a tremendous liberation, and of course, editors can be terribly repressive. But um, on on the internet, if you if you if you get say five thousand comments on something very interesting, really, you need an editor who shows you the twelve most interesting ones, yeah. and and apart from anything else, removes the obscene or merely abusive. Ones. Well, and the trouble is, if you just get obscene and abusive comments, then only obscene and abusive people think it's worth contributing. Mm -hmm. And decent people. I mean, this is always the case with letters pages in newspapers, that if there was a good letters editor who would publish interesting letters, including letters which showed that the newspaper had got something completely wrong, then people who had interesting letters to write would think, ah, oh, it's worth sending to that paper. Um, and similarly, if they had witty letters and knew they were going to go in. So I'm afraid you do, on the internet, as, on, as with a newspaper, do, oddly enough, they're, they're more similar than people thought. I, I agree, and it's very... Um, it's so easy now, isn't it? Because even bef beforehand, if you wanted to write a really horrible letter to your local MP or somebody like mm. you, Andrew, at the Daily Telegraph, yeah. you'd have to get your green ink and you'd have to yes. track down the address. You'd have to go to some effort, actually, yes. which was also a sort of an obstacle to people doing that. Now it's very easy. You just tweet away to your heart's yes. content. And, and I think people do feel that they have 
permission now in this climate and aided by social media, the ease of social media, to say things which I think we did stop saying for quite a long time. I mean, my own experiences growing up, that whole, you know, being called the, the P word and go back to where you came from, that's, I experienced that when I was in, probably in like the early 80s. Mm. And then generally through the 90s, it all stopped and we actually became quite, you know, not all kumbaya, but quite yeah. a sort of civilised society. In the last couple of years, there has definitely, particularly in the last 12 months, there has definitely been a resurgence of yeah. overtly nasty, racist language. Oh, my goodness, I've heard the phrase go back to where you came from so many times. And basically, yeah. I'm like, listen, I go back to Glasgow a lot. It's uh-huh. like, you know... Yeah. but And, and I, speak to, I speak to my yeah. friends who are, um, you know, from different ethnic backgrounds, and this is not, you know, an uncommon thing. So I think there is this kind of coarsening of... Of language, but I think it's so e- like I think you're right, Andrew. I think if people see a lot of hate on social media, it breeds hate, doesn't mm. it? Yes, yes, and it means that decent people don't contribute anymore. So, uh, and yeah, a lot of it is a lot of it. It's rather like, I mean, it, a lot of it is just sim- simply good manners and not doing something, something which is really going to distress people. Actually, I get my what I write is so studiously moderate and polite. I get virtually no hate mail from anyone. <laughs> You I just don't know how to... I'm a bad journalist, so they don't know how to turn the volume up to the... You need to, to become the, more clickbait, yeah, yeah, right, yes. uh, Figure out how to, figure out how to use the lift I occasionally get a, re- a retired clergyman in Cheltenham writes to me, and I, a very nice, very sweet letter, so he thinks that maybe our great aunts met sort of 20 years ago. You know, that, that's about the... That's the kind of postbag I attract. OK, so... Um, Andrew, just moving on to, to your... Um, what's your underreported story? Well, I, th- I think... And actually, I'm guilty of this myself because I've been terribly busy doing other things, but I think we haven't been paying enough attention to Germany. Uh, I was a correspondent in Germany in the late 90s. It's actually an incredibly difficult country to report because these coalition politics, if you, dis- if, you, if, you, if, you, if you give the official version, it's very, very boring because you immediately have to start, especially if you do it in written form, and say you write you're told you've got you asked to do 600 words then and you, you are going to mention the CDU brackets Christian Democratic Union the CSU their brackets their Bavarian allies uh, the SPD the FDP and, and uh, it all sounds utterly boring but I think the Merkel is forming a government she's got this man Jens Spahn who is the I think going to be the new health minister and he is the voice of German conservatism, which feels totally betrayed by Merkel herself, because Merkel did not make a proper attempt to do a deal with the FDP, brackets, free liberals, um, the free Democrats. Um, instead, she wanted to do a deal, well, she has done a deal with the Social Democrats, and, and German conservatives feel that she's abandoned any attempt, long ago abandoned any attempt to be conservative, and is just interested in stealing the opposition's clothes. They're very angry. They've got this man, Jens Spahn, who said that that no one, no one, sh- that no one need be poor in Germany because the welfare state is so gen- generous, and that has really annoyed a lot of people. Um, but he is—he's speaking for a, a, a kind of more rigorous um, conservatism, which this, they feel this this strange woman Merkel, who uh, keeps her own opinions so much to herself from the east, who then um, let in a lot of refugees. They feel that somehow she doesn't stand up for. For, for good German conservative values. But she's back in. She's back in, but I mean, her she's... party had its worst results since 1949. Her coalition partners had their worst results since 33, I think. 
Um, it, they really got a and and and. I mean, they did, I agree. In they the old days, there wasn't kicking. anyone on the right of the of the of the Christian Democrats, um, and that was their great strength. There was nowhere for discontented conservatives to go. Now, unfortunately, there are these very disreputable people. Yeah. The, um, Alternative for Deutschland, and some of them are really horrible, and they're you know. They, they, they've got a lot of MPs. They're going to be the main opposition or the largest single opposition group. So which... what, what do you think Angela Merkel and this coalition can do to stop this hemorrhaging of maybe kind of centre to conservative sentiment heading to this quite nasty party? Do you think they should be conceding some ground on, let's say, immigration policy? Or do you think she should be sort of sticking to her guns out of a sense of principle? They have quietly conceded some ground on immigration policy and they've put a Bavarian in charge of it. And I love that, putting a Bavarian <laughs> in charge of it. <laughs> and they'll, um, they'll, they're going to be more rigorous about it because they know that the German public want, wants a, a, a somewhat more restrictive attitude, at least the people who are economic migrants. So. And Jane, what, what's your take on, on Angela Merkel? Well, I think, I mean, if I dare say the B word, Brexit, I think what's interesting, I'd be interested to know actually from you, Andrew, about what this means for Brexit, because she was sort of the great sort of um, keeper of the flame of European federalism. Mm. And when Macron came in last year, he was talking about reform. And actually, you know, Merkel was desperate for Britain to stay, actually, and wants Britain to stay and doesn't, yeah. doesn't want us to leave. And I think she is sort of still has a, an interest in keeping Europe together. So I, I wonder whether she will have to give ground on that as well and, and accept, particularly in talks with Macron, about reform of well, the that's EU post-Brexit. That's another difficult thing. The euro, to keep it going long term, the Germans have to pay for it. But the mm. German taxpayers were told they wouldn't have to pay for it. And... To, to, to get that, to, ha to have a sort of common treasury, it would be, still be very, very unpopular in Germany. So, um, not popular in places like Holland either. So it is extraordinarily difficult. I mean, her crisis management of the euro was amazing, but the euro, of course, she didn't create it. Helmut Kohl saw it through. And again, it was something which the opposition were more keen on. The opposition were more, the Social Democrats and the Greens were more general, generally, genuinely pro-European or pro-single currency than the Christian Democrats who thought that the German mark was the great symbol of healthy post-war German recovery. Um, and so Merkel has kept, it, kept that show on the road, but it is, it, uh, it's been sort of one stopgap solution after another. And it, I, th I think it's still very difficult I mean, when I was living in Germany, people said, people said, we love going to Italy on holiday, we love Italian food, we love the Italians, but we do not want to have the same currency as the Italians. <laughs> and that's what they've got, and it doesn't fit. And it doesn't fit there. It doesn't, yeah. culturally, yeah. it doesn't sort of no, fit there, sort no, of. No. I mean, my take on Merkel's, I mean, I do obviously accept everything you've said. I mean, she, she has had a, a kicking, as lots of kind of centrist parties have had in, you know, Western Europe. This is a, a, a thing. But she is such a survivor. You know, the fact that, you know, she keeps her cards close mm. to her chest. She is, I mean, apart from the the, the, the refugee policy, which I could kind of see some merit mm. in, particularly if you look at Germany's very low birth rate. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think probably coming from Eastern Europe, there was a sense of a little bit of compassion about people wanting to mm. come to somewhere better. Um, but she is such a survivor and she's so kind of, she's quite pragmatic and quite a steely kind of way and she does sort of lurch from a bit of a crisis to a crisis but she clings on yes. and in a world full of quite demented strong men ha. 
yeah, it, no, it gives dement- me a bit of comfort to think yes. that she in her sort of yes. you know sludge coloured trouser suit will be there. Yeah. Yes. It's very European, isn't it? And it's, as you say, it's the centrism of that and having to hold the, the centre together. I think, as you say, with Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un and, and so on and so on, it's very good to have that strong woman at the centre of it, sort of holding it together. And she was obviously one of the first European leaders to come out um, and, and show solidarity with Theresa May over Russia this yeah. week. And even though everyone is like, everyone's very kind of, you know, everyone's head is turned by Macron, the new boy in town in in Europe, you know, I think she is still going to be a very strong, quite steadying Mm. influence um, in in Europe as we go, you know, as we go forward. Right, so back to me. (laughs) Um, So my underreported story, it shouldn't have been that underreported because it was actually a very, very big event. But because of other events, it's sort of been squeezed. And that was Philip Hammond's spring statement, our kind of spring fiscal event. And I have to say, it's so interesting about how the Treasury has changed its modus operandi on communications around these fiscal events. So when we had Gordon Brown, you know, he had a very, very good comms team. There would have been days of trailing, you know, a whole series of stories. I'm sure you as, you know, political journalists would have been drip fed, you know, here's a, here's a goodie for you, here's one for you. Philip Hammond has come in an era of absolute downspin, where he basically tries to um, get as little attention before um, a fiscal event and then actually doesn't create that much news afterwards. I don't know if that is a good thing or a bad thing, but he uh, he put forward a very rosy picture of how the economy was doing, and you can spin the figures either way. But I do think he went in a bit too jolly about how great everything was, and I don't think the picture is as rosy as it seems. I think you can look at a lot of spreadsheets, and obviously you can spin statistics in any way that you want. The truth is, our economy is not doing as badly as it could be, but that's no cause for punching the air. There are severe worries about how our growth is doing in competition with other countries, the G7, the G20. And for most people, how the economy is doing is how it affects them in their daily lives. And I thought the figures out from the Resolution Foundation were fascinating, saying that wages will not rise to pre-crash levels until around 2025, that's 17 years after the 2008 crash and of course all of that feeds the conditions of populism and you know I think Brexit and lots of other things as well so I just think the economy is still we don't talk about it as much as we used to but it is still such an important issue and I think for a lot of people they still feel they've got a massive squeeze on their living standards. Yeah but he played to his strengths really by daring to be dull. Well, he is very, very dull man. Um, you say that last time he tried to do a stand-up comedy routine. He did, I know. Well, the, the word, even, to, even, <laughs> even, even this week there were some complacent jokes. Wasn't there? <laughs> complacent about, jokes, which, which was rather horrible. I thought I didn't approve of those. The sort of <laughs> I'm Tigger and stuff. You know? I know that was not good. Incre- was it? Terribly self-regarding. Yeah. Um, asking for trouble, but. Generally speaking, I think not trying to sort of reinvent the British economy every six months is very sensible. Uh, it's very conservative in some ways, and. Um, it, it makes it very him, different it, from it, his predecessor. Yes, yes. No, the absence of stunts. I mean, I think it was in a way. It's a, it's a sort of re- it's a healthy recognition of weakness. He's not. If you change anything, then I mean, I'm rather annoyed. I seem to be paying more VAT than I used to, because <laughs> there was a big fuss about that, wasn't there? When he did change that, yeah. he, he had to back down on some of it. But he didn't back down on all of it, actually. Yes. 
Yes. The bit that affects me. He didn't see me to be the background. I can't believe he didn't run that past you. Honestly, <laughs> the state of this country. Well, I seriously. know why the public finances are improving. It's because people, <laughs> people like me are writing even larger checks every three months <laughs> from our modest earnings. I mean, I think the, the one sort of slightly stunty thing he did do was to threaten to axe the penny and the two p. Oh yes. And and sort of immediately there was this uproar. I mean, yes. from the Daily, Daily Telegraph, and it did seem a slightly kind of mad unforced error really to do that given that you know suddenly you're going to you know change inflation by doing that um but actually it's the second time he's had to u-turn so quickly i mean i yeah. think last year his budget last year he had to u-turn yes. on um national insurance within within a couple yes. of days yes. so it does it does i think i agree he does have this strength to be dull but actually is it also just not being incredibly politically astute um yeah. i think it's also interesting that does he kind of give in to this you know austerity is over and let's spend a bit of money? Or does he be a true Conservative? And actually, at the Conservative Party conference, as you probably know, Andrew, mm. there are a lot of concern about whether Theresa May is being a real Conservative Prime Minister. I mean, during the election as well, about sort of any kind of spending, it wasn't Thatcherite at all. Yeah. And I think he, yes. he has to sort of balance those two things about yes. whether you sort of, you do acknowledge that the public have had to put up with all this austerity for so many years and a decline in living standards, or are you going to balance the books? And you can't you can't do both yeah. in the budget next year. Yeah, he basically wants to balance autumn. the books, doesn't he? He's very much yeah. a sound man. He's dry as dry as a bone in his in his personal mm. convictions, I'd have thought. Yeah. Um, but he can make a favourable contrast. If I mean economic competence is such an important thing for the Conservatives to have. Mm. And zig a zigzag course actually just unsettles people. So But what is interesting is going forward, you know, nobody can just promise lots of spending without some tax yeah. rises. And, yeah. you know, who is going to be the brave soul other than the Liberal Democrats who come forward? I mean, Labour, of course, have said that, you know, they want to increase corporation tax and people earning over £80,000. But I just wonder if at any point um, Philip Hammond or anybody would concede that they are going to have to start, whether it's doing it sneakily by making you pay more VAT, Andrew, yeah. or just being out about it and saying, you know what, social care merits you know, a little bit more of a contribution from something. And the taxation of old people is astonishingly light, actually. I mean, old people who are still working pay much less tax, so you, you don't yeah. have to pay national insurance. Ken Clark pointed that out. Um, it was immediately contradicted by various other Tories, but well, that was it, it is something which can't last forever because it's very, very unfair if, if the taxes weigh much more heavily on people in, in, the, in their 20s and 30s and yeah. 40s. That was what's, what was so interesting actually about the election was that they had a, in yep. theory the dementia tax but you know you call yep. it a dementia tax it sounds terrible but in theory to reform social yep. care and to make it more just yep. was actually what they should have been doing it was just executed in the most yes. appalling way and allowed labor who would yep. should actually be in favor of yeah. Yeah, yeah. balancing that the social care system yep. allowed allowed you know them to call it a dementia tax and to sort of make it sound like they were being the Tories were being really evil again yep. Um, but also, I think a lot of polls show that people recognise what's going on in the NHS and in social care and would pay a bit more tax, in theory, when they answer a poll, um, in order to improve public services, just when they see it in their in their tax bill, they think, hang on a minute. I mean, there's yeah. a sort of cognitive dissonance going on, I yes. think, with everybody. Yes. But, yeah, I think you're right that that, that has to be that sort of... You know, it's got to be gripped at some point. It's got to be Yeah, right. no, it, it, it absolutely... And what did we think about John... McDonald's sort of response to it. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, just watching it from a slightly distant point of view, I did think John McDonald's good argument was I think councils and local authorities have had such a hit 
on their um, spending. Mm -hmm. And even when you have Philip Hammond's own council and local authority sort of begging for some extra funds, um, I thought that was a reasonably sharp attack. It's amazing how well the councils have managed, actually, considering that the, the cuts have been savage. Um, and uh, it does suggest that an awful lot of money was being wasted before. But I think the thing that people don't realise as well is that things have been so cut in local authorities. Like, most councillors are having to face some horrendous choices about yeah. what they have to cut, and the money is just getting well, tighter and tighter, and no-one goes into politics, whatever party, really, to say, oh, I'm going to close well, this children's yeah. centre. Most people don't go into local politics, actually, because they have no control, or virtually no control, over the money. And someone, that's another thing which will have to be grasped, but the, the, the precedent of the poll tax is so discouraging. But there will have to be a system of local government finance where local councillors actually have the power to raise or more money or to cut taxes and then then you'll get more serious people becoming local councillors and I mean the caliber of them of many of them is not very high but that's because what they have to do is they have virtually no power yeah. they just go to a lot of meetings and talk yeah that's the curse of politics in general uh -huh. isn't yes. it yes. right we're going to sort of move on to our final section and I did ask you to identify your villain of the week. And actually, both of you came up with quite similar villains of the week. Jane, do you want... Actually, Andrew, you start with just naming your villain and then I'm going to ask you to name your villain. Well, I was angry with Corbyn on the Russia statement because uh, uh, if you're an independent-minded backbench MP, which is what he spent most of his life as, fine to say something different and indeed to say something offensive. Um, but as leader of the Labour Party and as leader of those Labour MPs to then start making excuses for Putin, which is effectively what he's doing, is absolutely um, irresponsible. He should resign as leader if he's not prepared to represent the views of his MPs. Andrew, uh, I think that's it. I, we, we know that's not going to happen. We've been here before. OK, that's your overlay. No, but it's how the thing works and it's how our system works, that there's someone there who is auditioning for the job of Prime Minister and he's completely unconvincing in these auditions. Okay. He should let someone else have a go. Jane, who's your villain of the week? OK, I mean, it sort of goes without saying that I think Vladimir Putin is the ultimate villain of the week. But as, as, a oh, late, yes. as a late... <laughs> yes, I do have to remember that. As a late Jim Bowe might say... Le, 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 we mustn't let him off too late. No. no, I'm sorry. Yeah. But I think as a late Jim Bowe might say, you know, that's safe. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but my villain of the week is Seamus Milne, who was, was effectively freelancing in, um, mm. in a briefing to journalists after the... the May statement yesterday in the House of Commons. And yes, Corbyn was basically asking for more information, and I, and I do agree with you to an extent, Andrew, but Seamus Mill, I think, went further in his briefing and sort of made this outrageous, I think, comparison between Salisbury and Iraq WMD when there were, there were you know, it was clear and the intelligence services were saying there is no WMD in Iraq, and yet it was the politicians who sort of played funny business with that. But in Salisbury, there clearly was. I mean, you know, it's sort of, it's it's... You know, the evidence is there. And it's either, as Theresa May said initially, it's either Russia or the Russian state has allowed its um, nerve agents to go missing. Either way, they are in breach of Article 2 of the Chemical Weapons um, Convention. So I think Seamus Milne... I mean, it's, it's one thing for Corbyn to say, you know, we, we need to look for more evidence, but Seamus Milne kind of ratcheted it up a gear. Well, and I think does, him, it, that, that's does Corbyn a well. disservice, no, actually? No, but, but shame, Corbyn employs Seamus. And it's, so do you think this is akin to? Do you think this is akin to 
Tony Blair and Alistair Camp like Alistair Campbell briefing hard uh, hard on Iraq, for yeah, example. Yeah, I, I I think Seamus Miller oh, is becoming yes. is now freelancing and and he is breaking the Alistair Campbell rule, which is once you become the story, you should resign. And he is he is sort of not speaking for Jeremy Corbyn anymore. I mean, people were debating yes. about whether he should be named. Yes, yes, of course he should have been named because he is he's speaking for himself, Just, and we yes. know his background yes, that on debate Russia. Is continuing this morning. And he is a supporter yes. of Putin, yes. and I don't yes. think he should be. And I think it's yes, you know, he as as Anna Turley said yesterday on, on Twitter, you know, he doesn't represent the Labour Party values, and I think he should but be just the one to, who resigns. Just yes. for, for listeners, yeah. um, Seamus Milne is Jeremy Corbyn's official spokesman, and when you have a, a statement in the House, you have a gathering of journalists mm. and the spokespeople afterwards, and it's not normally the done thing to name um, or attribute quotes, but I think people felt that such was the severity and of, of what, was, what was being said. But I suppose just to push back a wee bit on what, what you've both said... In a way, and somebody put this to me, is it not acceptable for Corbyn to ask some questions saying, OK, do we have exact evidence? Why have we not sent back, you know, this nerve agent under the international conventions back to the country that we're accusing? And given that for a lot of people, the whole issue of um, weapons of mass destruction and chemical weapons in Iraq and Iraq looms large over the minds of lots of people within the Labour Party who very much are with Corbyn in his quite kind of anti-Western, you know, view of geopolitics. Is there not an argument that actually Corbyn is just being completely authentic about what he believes and a lot of people kind of side with him? He was being completely disingenuous, I think, because... Um, I think there was a very great strength of feeling in the House of Commons because people have had some time to think about it. And using this military-grade nerve agent in Salisbury or anywhere in the United Kingdom is an absolutely grotesque and outrageous thing to do. And the important thing is to unify everyone. And actually, Theresa May was good at that. Yes, I thought Theresa May's statement was very good. It was her best performance for a very long time. It recalled uh, sort of when she was at home after dealing with very tricky things, which people had strong feelings about, and being quite deliberate and slow about it. But then firm once she got to the... A, a good, strong, defensible position. That was her best day for uh, since yeah, I can't remember when. But Corbyn undermined that somehow because it is very important to present a united front to the Russians and not to, to give them the impression that they can divide and rule, which I don't think is actually the case because I think everyone thinks it's a damn outrage. But I suppose taking it... Because everyone is steamed up about this, rightly so, lots of strong words, international condemnation as well. But once you move it past... Words and of course we've expelled some diplomats. We could go further and take much more financial sanctions against key Russian people in the capital. Where does it go? I mean, if you want to talk tough and tough and tough, at some point, you know, you're on a continuum mm. where you're getting into something really tough, which is flexing a bit of military muscle. Now, a lot of people in this country, definitely a lot of people in the Labour Party, but a lot of people in the public will think, "Hang on a minute, we're not going to seriously. We don't want like a military." kind of any military issue with Russia. We don't want any military conflict with anyone. Isn't Corbyn sort of trying to speak up for those people as well? I, th I think what, what is important to say is that Britain has, and I think this is where Corbyn was wrong, is that Britain has played by the rules, has played by the sort of the, you know, every single procedure that they could have taken. So they reported Russia to the OPC, the Organisation for the Prote Prevention of Chemical Weapons, last week. 
you know, they gave, you know, the British government gave Russia 40, 36 hours to respond and say this was either the state or they'd lost control of their own weapons. And I think actually, um, you know, the, the, the mood of the Security Council session last night, actually a lot of people, although they weren't going as far as Britain and the, and the United States, there was a lot of condemnation of Russia there. Mm. And I think that's where you start to make things... You know, nobody's talking about going from naught to 60 and, and taking military action against Russia, but I think the international condemnation, which Theresa May has, has built up in, you know, steadily and she's now got Donald Trump fully on side, I think that's really important. But what, what you can do, a twin-track approach, you can also hit Putin actually where it hurts, which is his ego. You know, he can't wait for the World Cup this summer. And although it may, might seem like a trivial thing and we're not sending dignitaries, I think the best thing would, to, would be for England to pull out of the World Cup and for other countries to pull out of the, the World mm. Cup. And that would probably hurt Putin more that, than that is an interesting any financial thing because he's such an egomaniac yeah. that to sort of attack him on a sort of soft cultural way I think is probably the best way forward. Well, he is an egomaniac. We, we, we are treated to his sort of semi-naked calendars every oh, yes. year, which nobody <coughs> needs to see. Yes. Andrew's having an attack thinking about it. <coughs> But you're absolutely right about the World Cup, and I think you know um, England should think about you know withdrawing it. I mean, we Scots are ahead of the game. We, we we've made we made a very kind of principal decision to not send our you team. Saw this coming, yeah, yeah, we decided to lose all our games, so we didn't want to kind of aid and abet those nasty. And thanks, I know it's really really good. Um, so my uh, villain of the week is a completely different tack, and it's to do with gender politics and the thorny issue of the pay gap and equal pay. So this week it was revealed that Netflix did not pay an actress called Claire Foy, who plays the Queen in The Crown, the same amount of money as Prince Philip, who was paid by Matt Smith got. So, you know, this issue of gender pay rages on and on. Claire Foy did a cracking job on The Queen. She won Golden Globe Award. She, in that lead role, she got way more airtime than um, Matt Smith. She made that into this sort of cult viewing, along with the woman that played Princess Margaret mm. and her silk pyjamas, obviously, who were, they were very important. Amazing. But I just couldn't really believe that in this day and age, if the woman who plays the Queen, who is the richest woman in the world, can't even get equal pay, what hope do the rest of us have? Well, she presumably she'll get paid more next time. No, she won't, Andrew, because her contract's up now. Mm. Oh. They've got a new actress. No, what I mean is in, in other roles, because she's, she's so greatly increased her fame through, do, through doing that very well. But I think it's a slightly bogus thing, because they're both paid enormous sums compared to... Most, most people. Andrew, whether you're paid, just, whether you're paid a pound, <laughs> whether you're getting, like, 10 quid or you're getting 10 million pounds, the fact that we should be getting the same amount of money for the same work, our biological differences shouldn't matter. Mm. I agree absolutely with you, Aisha. And, and, and she, I mean, she did carry that entire series. She, she made it the incredibly successful series that it is. And Matt Smith, you know, he has, he has done Doctor Who, but Claire Foy had an amazing background in... I think she was in um, Wolf Hall. Yeah. That incredible drama, and she's you know she's an established actress already, and she did she was in much more scenes than than Matt and Smith. And here's what and they could have done. Here's two options they could have done, Andrew. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so two and options. That, that I can see. Yeah, it's when I was having like, addresses <laughs> if I'm a recalcitrant seven-year-old. Yeah. You are. Either you can eat your broccoli, Andrew, or. Yes, or you can stay at the table right, for the yes, rest of yes, the evening. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. Yes. So what they could have done is, because the first series was massively successful, when it came to the second series, they could have upped her salary. Yeah. Oh, yes. And what they could, what I think she should do now is ask for back pay. 
Yes, no, right, absolutely. Absolutely. Greedy. You're bloody lucky to have such a good part. Andrew, um, how? No, I, I really, and I honestly, it's, it, these, the, the, the numbers are no doubt astronomical compared to what most people can hope to earn in an entire lifetime. But as I said, it's the about equality. But it's about equality. It's about the principle. I mean, would it be fair well, if, you know, you were paid more than us for doing this podcast? Uh, no, I think I should probably be paid less. Oh, good. I, I did want to raise that with you yes. afterwards, actually. It's saved it. We'll do it on the lift and yes, we'll do yes. it on the way down. Yes. OK, and okay. we're going to finally finish off on a positive note, which is our hero of the week. And I think we are all unanimous in that there is only one hero this week, and that is Stephen Hawking, who died and was just such a huge, huge figure and just such an uplifting figure. Jane, your thoughts? Yeah, I think and one of the things... I mean, he was amazing in sort of so many ways, but I think one of the things that so many people have been saying is that the way that he kind of permeated popular culture and made science accessible, and actually I think what so many people, and this always happens with kind of opera and, and you know, ancient Greek and classical studies, when people say that sort of they're trying to sort of reach that out to the masses, it's always described as dumbing down, but I think what Stephen Hawking did was he made, he sort of clevered, clevered up the rest of us by giving us access to this incredibly sort of, you know, can't get your head around it, science, and made it so easy to get into. I think he, he's an incredible person. Yes. Um, I, I pushed him once around Cambridge in about 1978 in his... Wow. Just because he, wow. he, he needed pushing. That's and he amazing. wanted to get somewhere. I think he more or less hailed me. Uh, <laughs> and I wasn't very good at it, actually, because the wheelchair... Wheelchairs probably weren't so good in those days, and also the pavements weren't so good. So there were a lot of... And the Cambridge is full of sort of bits of stone and things and cobbles and stuff. So I don't think he had a very comfortable ride, actually. And, <laughs> and he didn't seem at all grateful at the end of it. But nevertheless, that was my, my encounter with, with a, with a, with a <laughs> you know... That's amazing. I mean, for me, I just think to, you know, to have, to have thought you were going to end your life at, at 21 yeah. and to have had this amazing mind trapped in a body which was just limiting you in every way and just to soar and succeed, but also to have that sense of humour, mm. that amazing, sparkling sense of humour is just absolutely wonderful. Um, I still don't have a clue what that book was about, though, I'm going to be completely honest. I've had so many people that have been like, oh, yeah, I read the book, I loved it, I absolutely <laughs> loved it, honestly. <laughs> and then you try and get them to explain it, and they're like, it's, I can't, honestly, it's just too complicated. And you're like, yeah, you know what, you haven't got a Scooby, what you were talking about. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much um, to my guest, uh, Jane Merrick. Andrew Jimson, I've been Aisha Hazarika and I look forward to your company again next week. <laughs>